2 Chronicles 6, 12 through 17. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and he placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law as you have done. And now, Lord, the God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant come true. Let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Father, we're thankful that we have the uh, privilege to come into uh, your house this morning to worship you. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you have made uh, possible for us to come directly into your presence through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We didn't have to come this morning and offer a goat or a lamb to, to, to cover our sins, but Jesus has already paid the price, and he has made the way possible. And so, Lord, thank you for your great love for us. And now, Lord, I pray that as we um, look into your word, Lord, would we um, be like uh, a little Samuel who heard your voice and finally responded, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so I pray that uh, this morning the Spirit of God would take um, the word of God and speak to each of us uh, right where we're at. And Lord, um, thank you uh, for the, the privilege we have to uh, look into your word today. Uh, grant us listening ears and a, a heart that's open to you, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at uh, the life of King Solomon and uh, looking at uh, the big picture, the title of this series is uh, The Wise King Who Became Foolish. And so we're hoping to learn some lessons from the life of Solomon who started out really, really well and didn't finish very well. And of course, uh, our, our purpose and goal is not only to start well in our Christian life, but God wants us to finish well. And so we're looking at the reign of Solomon. Um, he was the, the third king in Israel's history. First was Saul, and then David, and then uh, David's son Solomon. He reigned for 40 years. And uh, while Solomon was the king of Israel, it was kind of the golden age for Israel. It was a time of peace and prosperity. But probably the lasting legacy of Solomon was a house that he built. Solomon's temple. And you, you remember the story from the Old Testament that previously uh, the Israelites had a tabernacle. It was a, it was a portable place, and so wherever they went, they uh, picked up this tent and moved it with them. But God had put in David's heart a desire to have a permanent worship place for God. And David wanted to build that, and God ultimately said to David, no, you're not going to build it, but your son will. 
And by the way, David, I am going to build you a house. You're going to have a lineage on the, on the throne of Israel uh, forever. And of course, that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so the last couple of weeks, we looked at um, Solomon building the temple. It took seven years to build. It was a magnificent temple. The, the plans were really uh, given from God to David to Solomon. And so uh, here was this magnificent temple that, that uh, the people gave sacrificially, and King David gave sacrificially gold and silver and resources to build the temple. And uh, finally, the temple is built after seven years. And what we want to look at this morning is the dedication of the temple. Uh, this was a grand celebration, the completion of this magnificent temple. Now for the first time in Israel's history, they had a permanent place where they could come and worship God. And what a celebration it was. 14-day celebration, and we're going to look at it in a little bit. Now we do the same today, don't we? In, in, uh, in ministry, in, in churches, in business, when you build a new building, you, you have a celebration, you have a dedication. And here is uh, this, this dedication of, of this Solomon's temple that we're going to focus on this morning. And uh, more specifically, we're going to focus on Solomon's prayer. Because we're going to learn four key truths about God from Solomon's prayer. And uh, that's going to be our focus in a little, little bit. Uh, here, here's our, our premise uh, introductory statement, though, as we're going to think about prayer in a little bit. How we pray reveals our view and understanding of God. So how we pray really gives insight into what we think about God and what we think about ourselves. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He talks about a Pharisee that, that uh, came in to pray and, and he came in with an attitude of pride and he started to pray and he says, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other sinful people, like all the other tax collectors and, and the thieves and the robbers. And then a, a tax collector came in to pray and he prayed out of humility and said, Oh God, I, I, I'm a sinful person and God, would you please uh, look upon me with your grace and mercy? And Jesus said, which one went away justified by God? And it was the tax collector. And the key thought is that, that we need to approach God's throne humbly. And so we want to think about four key thoughts about who God is. And uh, But let's look at the setting first. And uh, you can uh, follow along in First Kings chapter 8 or follow along on the screen. Uh, we want to think about the setting. So the setting is is the dedication of the temple. We already mentioned that. In chapter 7, uh, the temple is furnished. So they're bringing all the furniture and the, the various ornamental things into the temple. But when we get to chapter 8 and the first few verses, now they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. That Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes the very presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant that it symbolized his, his holiness that you weren't even allowed to touch. And so there were four rings on each end of it with long poles. And the priests were to carry the pole and, and not touch the Ark of the Covenant because God is a holy God. And so there's a, there's a procession and they, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And let's just read a couple of these uh, uh, verses to get a little flavor of what this looked like. Uh, verse 1, then King Solomon, chapter 8 of 1 Kings, 
summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion. That's Jerusalem, the city of David. Uh, verse, verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of the meeting and all the sacred furnishings. The priests and Levites carried them up. And King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him before the ark sacrificed so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priest then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Verse 10, And when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so here is the, the ultimate uh, high point of, of bringing the Ark of the Covenant that represents the very presence of God. And they put it in the Holy of Holies and a cloud representing God's glory and God's presence fills the Holy of Holies and the temple. Well, um, then we continue on and discover that uh, Solomon has some things to say at this uh, this dedication. He pronounces some words of blessing to the to the people, and um, as we read in our scripture reading from Second Chronicles chapter six, we discover that the first thing he does is he makes a platform. Um, says that Solomon made a bronze platform five cubits high. That's um, that's seven and a half feet high, five cubits wide and three cubits high, and placed in the center of the outer court. So here Solomon's going to deliver a message to all of Israel, and he builds a platform so people can see him. And when I did the little measuring and calculating in my head, I discovered that the, the platform is about twice the size of the communion table here, maybe about a foot higher. And Solomon stands on that platform and he pronounces a blessing on the, the people of, of Israel in, in verses uh, uh, 14 through 21. But then we come to um, Solomon's prayer. And that's what we want to focus on this, this morning. Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Remember, how we pray reveals our understanding of who God is. So let's think about who God is. And think about four attributes of God that we're going to just simply draw out of this prayer that, that Solomon prays, this, this celebration of the dedication of the temple, and then we'll see how they apply to our lives. So here's, uh, here's the first one that we want to look at this morning. The fact that God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. And as we just peruse through Solomon's blessing in the first part of chapter 8 in his prayer, uh, we see this word promise over and over again. Verse 20, Solomon says, The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. Verse 24, God, you have kept your promise to your servant David my father. 
With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Verse 25, Now the Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father the promises you've made to him. Verse 26, And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David my father come true. And so all through this prayer, David is saying, or rather Solomon is saying, God, you've kept your promise. You promised to my father, King David, that his son would rule on the throne. And today that's happening. You promised that I would be able to build a temple. And that's happening. And you promised that the lineage of David would be on the throne forever. And Lord, would you fulfill that promise as well? And so Solomon's prayer starts out by reminding us that God is a promise keeper. There's not a one of us today that haven't been deeply wounded by broken promises. Because we live in a fallen world and each of us are, are, are fallen and, and have a, a sin nature and we all are wounded by broken promises. It could be the promise of money. That you made a, a contract, an arrangement with somebody and they, they broke their promise and they didn't fulfill it. It could be a promise in a marketplace where maybe a, a boss or a supervisor promised you something and, and that didn't come to fruition. Maybe it's a promise from a, a mom or a dad who made a promise and it never came to fruition. Or maybe it's a promise of marriage where two people stand and front of a church in the presence of God and make a vow and a commitment and that promise is broken. We could go on and on, but the point is all of us have been deeply wounded by broken promises. And the good news this morning is that God is a promise keeper. And God keeps every one of His promises. And that's where Solomon is praying here and focusing here. God, you are a covenant-keeping God. God, you are a promise-keeping God. And your promise today has been fulfilled in uh, the celebration of the temple. And so God is a promise-keeping God. That's the first uh, character trait we want to think about from Solomon's prayer. As we apply that to our lives, think about the various promises in Scripture that we can hold on to this morning. The promise of salvation. The promise of eternal life. Titus chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, where Paul, writing to, to Titus, talks about the fact that God is a God who cannot lie. And then he says, in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before the beginning of time. And so the promise of, of everlasting life, Romans 10, 9 and 10, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And isn't that a great promise that, that we can have assurance that we know what is beyond this world. And on this Labor Day weekend when we celebrate labor and we celebrate work and the American spirit and the American ethic where we think about uh, you know doing it ourselves and pulling us ourselves up by our bootstraps, the message of, of salvation through Jesus Christ is just the opposite. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not by works, lest any man should boast. There's no amount of works that we can do that could satisfy the, the righteousness and holiness of God. 
Salvation is a gift. It simply needs to be received. Well, there's not only the gift of salvation, there's the gift of eternal security. Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? And Paul goes on in this high point passage in Romans chapter 8, and he goes on to, to list all the potential things that could separate us from God's love. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present or the future or any powers, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Uh, John 10 says we're, we're in the hands of Jesus Christ and then God the Father has his hands around Christ. We are secure in him. There's the promise of the peace of God. In the midst of our chaotic world in which we live, we can experience peace, not only peace with God, but the peace of God. Isaiah 26.3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 gives us the formula. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of of our chaotic world, we can have peace when we download the promises of God and we, we follow God's prescription for peace, and it's stop worrying and pray and give it to God. And the sovereign God is in control. There's the promise of God's provision. Philippians 4.19 Wonderful promise where Paul's writing this thank you note to the Philippian believers. And he concludes by saying, My God will supply all of your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The promise of God's provision. There's the promise of Christ's return. John chapter 14, and uh, Jesus' closing words to his disciples, and he's trying to comfort them because he's just told them he's going to leave. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, guess what? I'm coming back to take you home to be with me. And so the... Last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, the words of Jesus, look, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, look, I'm coming soon, my reward is with me. The next to the last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And so we have the promise that uh, Christ is going to return someday. And so... um, God is a promise keeper. And Solomon in this uh, wonderful dedication prayer uh, reminds us that we serve a promise-keeping God. Well, the second thought, the second attribute that we need to learn from Solomon's prayer is uh, called the immensity of God or the omnipresence of God. And this is simply the truth that God is everywhere. That God cannot be contained in a building. And Solomon prays this in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 27. He prays, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, 
even the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. And so the second character trait of God, not only is he a promise keeper, but God is everywhere. There's no building that can contain God. And, and Solomon reminds us of this as they're building this, this permanent place of worship. And he's really saying, hey, this is, this is a permanent place of worship, but this building cannot contain God. The omnipresence or immensity of God. Here's a, a Moody Handbook definition of immensity. That perfection of the divine being which, by which God transcends all spatial limitations and yet is present at every point of space with his whole being. Dr. Luke writes about this in the, in the book of uh, Acts, chapter 7. Uh, let me read just a couple verses from Acts chapter 7, verses 48 and 49. It's really from Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, and and uh, that didn't go over too well because when it was done, they they, uh, they were so angry with him, they stoned him. But here's, here's uh, Stephen, uh, and he's referring to Solomon's temple. It was Solomon who built a house for God. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And so, no house. You go over to Europe and you, and you see all these tremendous great cathedrals and and they're ornate, and they're beautiful, and they're immense. But no cathedral can contain God. Because God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. And here Stephen, quoting the Old Testament, says, the earth is God's footstool. Picturesque language there. You're tired at the end of the day, and you, you sit down, you pull up a footstool and put your feet up, and God never tires, but that's kind of the picture of how great God is and how big God is and how immense God is. Just the earth is God's footstool. The immensity or omnipresence of God. So David writes about this in Psalm 139 and probably the most um, clearest uh, verses about the immensity of God, the omnipresence of God. He's talking about um, the fact that God is omniscient uh, in the first part of Psalm 39, and then he, he begins to ask some questions. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, the east, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, the west, you are there. Surely the darkness, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not hide me. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And so the psalmist is saying, there's no place you can go to get away from God. Now Jonah, Jonah tried to run from God in Jonah chapter 1. And God told him to go to Nineveh, and he didn't want to go, and he runs to Tarshish, and he thinks he can flee from God, but God was there. You cannot flee from God. No building, no structure can contain the presence of God, because God is everywhere. 
Well, there's a, a third a character trait of God from this prayer in First uh, First Kings chapter eight, Solomon's dedication prayer, and it has to do with the grace and the mercy of God. The grace and the mercy of God, and Solomon weaves this theme all through all through his uh, his prayer, and he uses the word forgiveness. So let's look at it from First Kings chapter eight and. Uh, we continue to read about the, Solomon's prayer here, beginning in verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Look at verse uh, verse uh, 33 and 34. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, when they turn their back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to your ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Uh, Verse 39 Uh, The same concept. Hear from heaven and forgive and act. All through uh, this prayer, we go to verse verse 50. talks about forgiving your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captives to show them mercy. All through this prayer, Solomon is talking about forgiveness. And what's behind forgiveness? What's the basis of forgiveness? It's the grace and the mercy of God. And so the third attribute of God that, that Solomon focuses in on his uh, prayer of dedication is that God is a great God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Our position in Christ when we come to put our faith in Christ and Him alone for our salvation and our sin is we are therefore justified therefore being justified by faith we have peace with god through the lord jesus christ romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is now no condemnation to those who are in christ and christ has forgiven our sins he's removed them as far as the east is from the west he is a god of mercy and grace and forgiveness and we need to give thanks for that every day. There's also an aspect of forgiveness. Uh, one is our position in Christ. And once we come to faith in Christ, our, our position is justified. He sees us clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He sees us just as if we've never sinned. But there's also the practical reality of living our Christian life where we continue to sin. And that's called our sanctification. And I'm glad also that uh, when we fall and when we stumble, and none of us are going to reach perfection until we are glorified, that God is also a forgiving God. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, means homo legeo, to say the same thing about sin as God does. He's faithful in just what to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a God who is a God of, of mercy, who is a God of forgiveness. The psalmist writes about it in Psalm 103. 
in describing who God is and the character of God. Verses 8 through 12, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Thank God for that. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed His transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. God is a gracious God. There's no sin that's beyond the grace of God. There's no sin that's so so awful, so horrific that God cannot and will not forgive. God is a God of grace and mercy. And by the way, the application of that is uh, that we need to be forgiving people too. Because if God has forgiven us, then we also need to be willing to forgive others. Remember the story that it was uh, Peter who asked uh, Jesus the question, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And the rabbinic law said three times, three strikes and you're out. And Peter said seven times? Remember Jesus' answer? says, no, 70 times seven. Uh, uh, for forgiving, we need to be forgiving people. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and tender-hearted one toward another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ's sake has forgiven you. So God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a, he's a forgiving God. But there's a fourth character trait in Solomon's prayer that we want to think about that not only is, is God a promise keeper and God is everywhere and God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness, but it's the missionary heart of God. And we see that in Solomon's prayer. Let's just look at uh, 1 Kings eight fifty nine and, and 60. He's uh, closing his blessing on, on the, the people of, of Israel in verse 59. He says, And may these words of mine which I prayed before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people, Israel, according to each day's need. Here's the key so that all the peoples on the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Uh, That's mentioned one other time in this this prayer as well, back in in, in 40 verses, I think it's verse uh, 43. Solomon is basically praying and telling Israel, Israel, you're God's chosen people and, and you have all these blessings from God but you are God's chosen people, what? So that you can proclaim to the surrounding nations who the true God is. It's so that all the world will know who Jehovah is. Remember when uh, Moses came before Pharaoh and, and uh, Israel had been uh, in captivity and slave for 400 years and he begins to talk about God, Jehovah, and Pharaoh goes, well, I don't know who this God is. I mean, Egypt had hundreds of gods, but I don't know who God Jehovah is, and he found out who the true God was through the series of ten plagues. God is a God with a 
a, a missionary heart, and he wanted Israel to, to share God's truth and blessing with the nations around them so that all the world would know. And what happened? Just the opposite happened. The surrounding culture influenced Israel, and they ended up worshiping the gods of their culture. Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech and got involved in child sacrifice. The missionary heart of God is that all the world will know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should have what? Everlasting life. Second Peter 3.9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you. The, the word is, he's long-suffering, God. Not wanting any to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. The context of that is, why hasn't Christ returned yet? And he's talking about people who are saying, you know, where is this coming of Jesus? And Peter's saying, I'll tell you why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because he's patient, and he's long-suffering, and he's waiting for people to come to faith and repentance in him because he has a missionary heart. Well, that's Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, and he, he gives us four key truths about who, who God is. And let's, uh, let's think about how this, this story and this passage finishes up. Uh, so the third thought here is the sacrifices. Uh, the setting, Solomon's prayer, and the sacrifices. And I'm going to read from Second Chronicles chapter 7, a, a parallel passage here that talks about how the dedication of the temple finished up. And so, um, here's what we read from Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And when all of Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple... They knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good. His love and His mercy endures forever. And then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before, the God, before God. Listen to this. Verse 5. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goat. That, that, that's quite a sacrifice. I mean, we, we can't even begin to imagine or visualize. <clears throat> 22,000 head of cattle, 120,000 sheep and goat is a sacrifice to celebrate God and His goodness and His mercy and the completion of the temple. Well, that's that's the story of Solomon's uh, temple and the dedication and his prayer. And just in the last uh, few minutes this morning, uh, let's just think about some life lessons that we can um, take from First Kings chapter eight and the dedication of Solomon's temple. So here's here's number one. Here's what we need to to, to remember: we must embrace the privilege of direct access to God. We must embrace and understand this high privilege that we have, which is direct access to God. 
So both the tabernacle, the portable worship tent, and the permanent temple were both set up the same way. There were outer courts, then you got inside the, the, the tent or the temple, and there were some, some uh, furnishings there and some, some altars, but then there was the holy place, and then beyond that was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that there was only one person on one day of the year, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where someone was able to enter the Holy of Holies because that was the very presence of God. And it was the high priest. And he was, he was to, to enter in and, and offer a sacrifice on, on the Day of Atonement. And, and uh, they actually tied a, a, a rope around his leg because if God didn't accept that sacrifice and something happened to the high priest, no one could go into that Holy of Holies. And so they would had a way to get him out. If you remember the, 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 the story of the, the crucifixion in Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus died... And he gave out a victory cry in Matthew 27, verse, verse 50. He cried out with a loud voice to Telestai, it's finished. Matthew says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. And so what happened? The separation that kept people out of the Holy of Holies, that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom symbolizing what now we have direct access to god we don't have to go through a high priest we don't have to go through the sacrificial system we have a great high priest his name's jesus who entered into the holy of holies and and once and for all gave his life as a sacrifice for sin and when he was finished he sat down at the right hand of god the father meaning his work was complete And so the book of Hebrews admonishes us that we have full access into God's presence 24-7. We don't have to go through another person. We don't have to go through a priest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us that we can come boldly into His presence. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We have this wonderful privilege that at any time, day, night, wherever we are, we can go directly into God's presence. We have a full access pass to God. I have a cousin that's married. Her husband's name is Donnie Donnie Floyd. And uh, Donnie, for years, has... um, worked for Hendrix Motorsports and uh, he started out as a body repair guy with uh, the for the NASCAR Hendrix team and um, Donnie now is a, a chaplain with uh, mo- motorsports racing and and he's also a chaplain for um, Hendrix Motorsports and so every Wednesday um, Hendrix Motorsports has a a, a uh, John Hendricks Fellowship Luncheon, and they, they invite all their employees, and uh, they have a lunch together, and, and uh, Donnie gives a, a, a message uh, for about a half hour, and they just have this great time of encouragement and fellowship, and uh, uh, Donnie's uh, done that for years, and I was thinking about 
you know, and how Donnie knows the Hendrix team, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe someday when, uh, you know, MIS is uh, up here at uh, Brooklyn. Of course, it's always on a Sunday, isn't it? Except for that time it got rained out, Matt. You remember this, and you invited me, and we went on a Monday a couple years ago. But uh, usually I can't make it on a Sunday to, to MIS. But I, I was thinking, man, you know, I could probably call Donnie up. And Donnie knows the Hendrix, and... And I could probably, like, not only get seats, but I bet you I could get, like, this little pass here and get down in the pits and get down there where all the action is. Why? Because I, I, I know somebody. I know Donnie. And, and in essence, this is, what, this is what the scriptures are saying. Because we, we know Jesus and we've come to faith in him. We have access, full pass access into God's presence. We underutilize the privilege of prayer, don't we? Oftentimes it's when we get into trouble, like, okay, now I'll pray. And God desires this intimate daily relationship with him. And we have, if we know Jesus, we have full access. Secondly, the promises of God give us certainty in our, in our upside down, uncertain world. So Solomon talked about God's promises over and over and over again. And, um, how key that is in our uh, lives and world today, where the world that we live in is is chaotic, where people call good evil and evil good. Uh, what can give us certainty in this uncertain times in which we live? They are the promises of God. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, verse eighteen. He says, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Every word in this book will come true. Every promise will come true because God is a God who cannot lie. And so we have certainty in an uncertain world. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Here's our encouragement. I have overcome the world. And when we read the book of Revelation, we know that God, God, God wins. What gives us certainty in an uncertain world, in a world of chaos and turmoil, is the promises of God. Lastly, and then we're done this morning, life lesson number three is this. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. And so while the dedication of the temple was a great celebration, and there were lots and lots of animal sacrifices, 22,000 heads of cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats, we know that ultimately what does God want from us? God wants an obedient heart. That's why Solomon concludes this, uh, this section here in First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 61. He says, And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by His decrees and obey His commands at this time. What's, what's the ultimate... Thing that God wants from us. Yes, uh, sacrifices are part of the, the worship system, but ultimately, God wants an obedient heart. 
That was made very clear in, in earlier in Israel's history with, with Saul and Samuel. And remember that God had told uh, uh, Saul that he needed to destroy uh, all, all of uh, his first of victory, military victory, and he needed to destroy everyone and sheep and cattle and all. And Saul decided to keep some for himself. And um, he, he began to rationalize that when he was confronted, he said, well, I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice. And Samuel uh, confronts Saul. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And so, more than our sacrifice, what God wants for us this morning is an obedient heart. Well, God. His character is revealed in Solomon's prayer. And I don't know which of these character traits of God that you need to be reminded of this this morning, but let me just uh, remind you that God is a promise-keeping God. Maybe this morning you just need to to hold on to one of those promises and and, uh, just rest on on the promise of, of God's peace or God's provision or the promise of salvation or the promise of eternal security or, or the promise that he's coming again. Maybe your need this morning is to recognize and remember that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. We can't flee from God. We can't run from God. And we have this direct access to God through prayer. We can call on him anytime, day or night. And to be reminded that he's a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness and to to give him thanks if we know him as our personal Savior or if we've never taken that step of of simply uh, by faith, uh, putting our faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as our sin debt and and sin bearer uh, to put our faith and trust in him. Or maybe we need to be reminded that God's a God with a missionary heart. And that God's desire is that all the world would know that he is the true God. And that he wants to use us as a vehicle to pass on the good news of the gospel. Well, whatever your need is this morning, God is, God's character is there to meet it. And uh, God is a God who will never let us down. And uh, we're thankful for that. Let's, let's pray this morning, shall we? Father, um, thank you for this uh, portion of scripture and this great celebration of the dedication of Solomon's temple. Thank you for the insight as we look at this prayer that we can get about who you are. That you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, I don't know what promise uh, that as we're sitting here this morning that we that we need to to claim this morning, but Lord, help us to help us to be a person that knows your word and rests on your promises. Lord, I, I thank you that, that you are a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I thank you that so many years ago, as an eight-year-old boy, um, I recognized my need of a Savior and asked Jesus to be my Savior and sin bearer. And Lord, I thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy. You don't give us what we deserve, but you want to give us your grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Thank you for that. And Lord, help us to recognize that uh, you want the entire world to know who you are. Lord, may we be a, 
an instrument uh, today, this, this week, and in the coming days of your grace and mercy, a conduit of the gospel to other people. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.